Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Freaking Tuesday. <laughs> I love Tuesdays. We start off the podcast every time, start talking about this. But I think I just realized I love Tuesdays even more because yeah. before the podcast, I get an extra cup of coffee and it's magical. <laughs> you do drink a lot of coffee on podcast days. How how much are you going now? Are you just like loading up with like 400 milligrams it kind of feels like that with your energy levels i am up titrating is the word i'm going for but no exact science so you brew we brew coffee that's basically sludge i think that's how our household operates but so on on tuesdays i don't dilute the coffee and i have an extra cup so i'm not entirely sure we'll we'll let we'll leave that up to the the coffee powers that be (laughs) it's practically pipe cleaner going through you at this point you have some drano going through your intestines which has to be good you're not taking any extra weight into this podcast episode at all right now. Um, gross. Gross? Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> Isn't that that's, whole... a, that's a metaphor I don't like. Isn't that the whole point of coffee, though? No, coffee <laughs> is delicious. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> coffee is merely a utilitarian, uh, you know, X-lax, uh, perhaps, that, you know, you can put a lot of creamer in. Actually, that's one thing with my coffee. I think maybe people could tell based on my personality, but, like, I don't do uh, black coffee at all. And when people say they like black coffee, I truly don't understand. I get the straight vanilla coffee mate creamer that likely causes 18 different types of cancer. And I use about half of that and, uh, you know, the rest will be some coffee and then the rest will be maple syrup. It's pretty darn, uh, yeah, it's very, very sweet. <laughs> it's actually, it's quite fitting. This reminds me of Buddy and Elf. Is that his name? The, yeah, the character? Yeah, yeah. Is that the character in Elf? Call. We clearly have not seen Elf in, in enough. I don't know. I feel like it's a great movie, so we need to watch it every yeah. year. And it's been a couple of years. Actually, that reminds me of um, I, we were, the Syracuse basketball game was on TV. And the coach of uh, Syracuse is Jim Beheim. And his son is Buddy Beheim. Yeah, his son is Buddy It's Beheim. not his actual name. I looked it up. But, we never talked about this. Uh, did no. you look that up too? No, I, I didn't. I just remember about Buddy Beheim. So you, when you brought up Elf. But I did hear that there was a great great taunt. So Buddy Beheim had a horrible game this weekend. And a lot of people are making fun of Jim Beheim because his son is like playing a ton. He's almost like his the whole son game. is an, his, his son is first team all ACC. His well, son should be playing the whole the game. Theory is I, that... I actually, I went deep into basketball stats this weekend <laughs> to look this up because I was curious. I was like, is this nepotism? And it's not. His son is good. But the theory is that, uh, you know, of, of the haters is that, uh, and we're going to talk about why you should listen to these haters, but is that he is just first team AC, all ACC because he's playing almost 40 minutes a game, which is like the whole game. So he's playing huge amounts and he's shooting all the time. So as he went, went to the bench with his head hung low after yet another miss three someone in the stands said i hope you find your dad buddy oh snap (laughs) the elf quote straight from the north pole which i think was the perfect burn uh for someone that just missed a three-pointer i was all about that i feel bad for buddy he can't control the fact that his coach is a dad he can't do anything about that and he's first team all i'm still leaning on he's first team all acc but i get your point i need to go further into the stats and see how many shots he actually took versus the percentage but and i I think i mean i think there's a lot of talk recently about nepotism um in general and how that relates to things obviously like you know Jim Beheim was a good basketball player himself. He's an amazing coach. You would imagine that those are the situations where you raise a kid that's really good at basketball, particularly in Jim Beheim's system, which is this really unique. They do a lot of zone defense. They they shoot a lot of uh, threes. It, it, it's kind of killer made for Buddy Beheim. But nepotism is a problem. And where is the line between like, you know, a valid worth uh, recruitment versus nepotism? I mean, an article came out in Defector the other week that was looking at um, there are over a hundred NFL coaches, like uh, head coaches and assistant coaches, that are related to another NFL coach. Which is like that seems like a little bit of a problem when I, we're talking about uh, you know how we 
conceive of achievement. I do agree there. Though I would say that I feel like there's situations of nepotism, but I also feel like there's situations of reverse nepotism. And knowing what I know about Jim Beheim as a coach, I feel like he might be one of those reverse nepotism situations where like Buddy Beheim is only going to get playing time if he's playing spectacularly. Like he needs to go above and beyond to prove himself as a player. And I feel like, I don't know, my dad actually used to coach some of my sports teams and that's how he was with us. He was like, you guys better go above and beyond to prove it that this is not nepotism. So I feel like it depends on the situation. My dad was the exact opposite. He's like, David, just like do whatever you want to do. This is perfect. Um, Perhaps that's where the Buddy the Elf uh, taste of sweetness comes in. Uh, So yeah, if this podcast actually gets released, it might be a minor miracle. We've had major internet problems the last couple of days. We have no idea why. Um, So yeah, you might, we might come in and out. We'll see. This will be an interesting like Russian roulette game as it relates to our internet status. Our internet has been suffering a case of piece of shit itis. I've described that for myself before. And that's currently what our internet uh, had yesterday and hopefully not now. Actually, if our internet is on the fritz, I'm going to have another cup of coffee and Uh, go full buddy the elf on it. If if we have to record this 90 minute podcast again, that's going to be. It might actually be overtraining syndrome, like our, tra- our because of our internet, because we use it so much. Um, I always think, man, we're calling on this a lot because often we'll both be like on our computers rocking it. Our phones will be there doing their thing on the internet, and then the TV will also be on. Which I've I've learned recently that actually having the TV on in the background, particularly while I'm doing like you know tasks that require a little bit less of my full focus, is really good. So what I've been doing is putting on the Food Network while I work. So it used to be sports. Uh, there really aren't that many midday sports going on right now, though occasionally I'll like have figure skating or speed skating or something on. Uh, right now I have beat Bobby Flay uh, and I'm learning all of these cooking tips that are just like seeping into my brain as I'm not paying attention to what's going on. I was giving you crap for this whole situation about watching Food Network yeah. and coaching, but I actually stopped because you've been translating that into reality. And I feel like that's how like <laughs> your genius brain works is you just, you're sitting there like kind of barely watching Bobby Flay, like it's going in and out. And then all of a sudden you're cooking these amazing dishes that are Bobby <laughs> I inspired. I'm like, where does this come from? And it's the wonders of your brain. And I'm glad our podcast listeners get to see that too, because I see that on a daily basis. And now I get to eat that on a daily <laughs> basis. And it's it's great. I'm also really into Bobby Flay's swag. So the way Beat Bobby Flay works is that, um, you know, a, a chef comes on and then they decide the challenge dish, which is usually their specialty. And Bobby Flay just hears it about it on the spot. And he's like, okay, I can make that better than you can. And often it's like, sometimes it's things like chicken parmesan, which I'm sure he has experience with, or, you know, some, you know, Southwestern dish. And sometimes it's like a, a dish from Thailand. And he's like, I think that's kind of like a noodle soup. And he just does it and then wins 66% of the time. I'm like, that is the swag I want to channel in all things. Like maybe a little bit less of like, the internalized misogyny of like a man just being like, (laughs) I can do this thing. Uh, A little more of the like, I can do this thing because I'm great at everything I do. I feel like the way that, I think your cooking style could be described as cheese swag. (laughs) So you've developed this unique cooking style where, I mean, so you'll make like chicken parm or lasagna. And when either for the main dish or our leftovers, you'll just take a bag of cheese and just sprinkle it over the entire dish. That way we can go back after the fact and scrape the cheese off like the (laughs) side of, and it becomes like a, I don't know, it's, I'm all about it because the cheese scraping like after we kind of have like a, f- a few course meal yeah and like the fifth course is just like cheese scraping <laughs> the side of the pan and it's great okay so that's my advancement in the field of cooking um you know i feel like i've advanced the field of training theory for ultras just a little bit but cooking all the way through this which is 
whatever uh, dish you're using, you leave some empty space in it. Um, you don't just cover the whole thing with whatever you're cooking. And in that empty space, you just put a metric crap ton of cheese, any type of cheese. You can use multiple cheeses. Often I'll even sprinkle Parmesan on top. Um, and then you let that cook so that you have a dish and it doesn't even have to be something that has cheese on it. And then at the end, you have a baked on crusty cheese. And honestly, it's probably the best thing that I've ever cooked. It's just the baked on crusty cheese. And you've gone so far to flavor just the cheese. Yeah. So you'll be putting spices on the cheese and it's a greater it's a great array of spices and you'll have like i don't know you'll put garlic on there you'll put basil you'll put all kinds of delicious things and it's it's a great cheese i mean you really craft this like five-star yelp review cheese scraping experience <laughs> i craft it often with craft uh, the, the very uh expensive organic cheese we get in great uh, great 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 quantities actually we went to whole foods this weekend and i think i got three things of monterey jack cheese and three things of um, mozzarella cheese and three things of Parmesan cheese. So we're, we're all about that cheese life. That cheese life is how we live. That's like another buddy that elf style, but applied to savory dishes. We are cheese-based organisms and cereal-based organisms. I think <laughs> that describes like half of our diet. But actually I was FaceTiming this weekend. I have um, twin nieces who are about one and a half years old. And my twin niece is currently obsessed with cereal in like a level in which like I actually don't know how my brother and yeah. sister-in-law are dealing with it because <laughs> she'll run into the kitchen and scream and have temper tantrums until she's allowed to have cereal, which they get, they bat about like, I don't know, like 25% and actually giving her cereal yeah. in these situations. And I'm like, she belongs in her genetic pool, David. <laughs> like someday when she's 18 and able to test with 23andMe by, by 17 years from now, they're going to have like a GWAS that identifies cereal creatures. Yeah. And she's going to be part of our family <laughs> on 23andMe just by that. It kind of worries me because it makes me think that maybe I'm blood related to you in some way, <laughs> yeah. you know, like maybe if we did that, it would actually pinpoint us as long lost relatives because I totally identify with this. I am, have a little bit more self-control with my temper tantrums, but if I don't have my cereal, we got a problem. Um, it is my main source of calories. So yeah, what type of cereals is she doing this with? I asked my brother, I was like, what are you getting? I mean, yeah. clearly it must be like Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Fruit Loops yeah. or something. And he was like, oh, it's Cracklin' Oprah and um, Quaker Oat, the Oat Squares. Oh no. And I'm like, Scott, that's lame. Yeah. Like, can you imagine what ha would happen if she had Cinnamon Toast Crunch? Like the level of, I mean, I think it could go either way. Like it could be a full scale temper yeah. tantrum or it could be like, she's like, I've seen divine existence. Yeah. I'm not sure which direction it would go. She's going to foodgasm. Um, it's just like fully to the max. I'm imagining her with like the, the little sprinkles that are at the bottom of the cinnamon toast crunching like the, the powder just like oh, i need my powder she's like <laughs> sniffing it at two years old it's like, this girl's going off the rails really young um but yeah actually that that makes me think that uh last week i was looking at uh you know like when you're eating cereal you always read the box it's like something that you always do for unfortunately like the checks boxes don't really have anything super fun on them so i was looking at the nutrition facts just like playing with numbers in my head as i was, was having my own personal foodgasm and i saw that checks has 70 percent of your daily iron per serving, which I'm not just eating checks for the taste or the calories. I'm eating it for the full nutritional experience, I realized, because I don't take an iron pill. So now I have checks to make sure I get my daily total. This is basically, uh, so basically what I'm saying for all the athletes out there is like supplement with your checks. It's absolutely needed. That's a, that's a decent rationalization. So you actually, we, you did 23andMe yeah. as, a, as a panel. We're not sponsored at all by 23andMe. I just think it's genetics. <laughs> genetics are interesting. And you found out that you have a gene variant for hemochromatosis. Yeah. So actually probably taking iron is not great for you. Granted, you're scared of lab draws. Sorry. I'm just like revealing yeah. your secrets oh, no. on the podcast. So like you haven't actually done an inside tracker test to figure that out. <laughs> but I think checks a great way to get an iron considering you might be at risk for iron overload oh okay we've talked about the blood draw stuff a little bit in the past but like i just don't like the blood being taken from my body um i love inside tracker and we want everyone listening to this to use inside tracker um but like 
it just scares me a little bit. And I always felt really self-conscious about that. And then um, I was with, I was talking to Drew Holman, um, who comes out a lot on the podcast, but, um, and he felt the same way. And he's like, I like to just assume I have the hemoglobin of a yak, of a high altitude yak. And sure enough, he did. Um, but I like that approach too, is like, if, as long as you feel good, also just assume that you have this like miracle blood. Have you ever had your blood drawn in your entire life? I'm sure I did when I was a kid or something. I don't remember. But you anything. don't, you have no memory of this. I have no memory. I have no blood results. That's wild. I just assume my, I, I assume my hemoglobin is like 20. My hematocrit is 55. My blood would just burn through the bottom of like a pipette because it's like uh, too hot for this, too hot for this lab. You're like, there's too much cinnamon toast crunch for this lab. <laughs> Not dealing with this. So true. Um, so speaking of body monitoring, uh, a nice little promo here for Whoop. Whoop generously sponsors the podcast. Uh, you can get your own Whoop with the uh, offer code SWAP at checkout, SWAP, and that's at join.whoop.com slash SWAP. You get a ton off. Um, a lot of podcast listeners have used it, getting really interesting insights. The main thing we love on there is HRV, um, but the 4.0s actually have a lot of other interesting variables too. I think, yeah, I think the 4.0s are an incredible step and they're starting to, they had like a back order on, on 4.0s for a while. And now people are starting to get 4.0s rapidly. My yeah. mom actually who's turning 60 coming up, ordered a whoop and she's like super into the, <laughs> the whoop 4.0. So, I mean, I think it's great for a lot of different populations. She's actually a baller athlete. My mom is a great athlete, but doesn't compete. But I think like these statistics are really interesting and the data that you can get from the whoop are really interesting. And what I love about the 4.0, so a few different things about the 4.0 compared to the 3.0, the first being they have skin temperature tracking, yeah. which is actually, I mean, in the times of Omicron and COVID kind of helpful. I've seen some athletes actually go and get a COVID test based on what their whoop is telling them. And yeah. sometimes it does wind up being positive and it can be a helpful predictor. The second is that they actually have O2 sets as well. Again, useful in these COVID times. And then the third is that I just learned this this morning, kind of game changing. The whoop 4.0 battery pack is waterproof. Oh, wow. So like when you're, when you're charging it, you can do it in water. Yeah, you can take a shower. Actually, they said it's waterproof up to two hours, but I'm pretty sure that if I spent more than two hours in water, I would be having a body freak out anyway. <laughs> I'm just like not a creature that's comfortable in water. I don't know. Uh, I, yeah. I didn't grow up like spending a lot of time swimming, spending a lot of time in the ocean and spending more than two hours in a water. I think my HRV the next day would be like, 30. <laughs> I'm not, I'm also the same way. And I actually saw a debate about this online about do individuals vary in buoyancy? Um, and essentially triathlon coaches were saying they don't, it's a question of how they like breathe and things like that. And I call bullshit because if I get in the water, I sink to the very bottom. I am not like the soggy checks rising to the top. I am the heavy granola straight, <laughs> straight onto the floor. And, um, I've tried everything. I've tried like taking deep breaths I tried, and, and it just doesn't work for me. Um, and then I, I saw a story online from the Tongan earthquake. So the big earthquake that caused the tsunami, that there was a guy that was thrown off a boat that was in the water for 27 hours treading water and survived and, and is hailed as like this water hero. I'm like, I would last maybe five minutes. I, I would just be like uh, straight to the bottom, like the, the very sad dead granola. <laughs> I agree. And there's something about the water too. And I think specifically in like bodies of water where you can't see the bottom, that just kind of makes me freak out. Yeah. Like, and I'm not like that. Like, I feel like I'm pretty calm, cool, controlled in most situations but put me in a body of water and I'm like oh sweet lord what's going on in this world I don't know well yeah if we were on Titanic like Rose and Jack we would just sink together like two very sad pieces of granola we wouldn't last long in the cold either we would just we would just hold hands and just be like goodbye world yeah that is whenever I think of the ending of that movie I am just like flummoxed because that movie really hit me in the feels because I was like eight or nine when it came out or whatever and I was so sad and then it's like if you do look at the dimensions of that door 
everything about it seemed unnecessary. Like, I feel like uh, Jack was being a little bit of a drama queen, not getting on that door. Like that was some like internalized misogyny being like, she needs that whole door for herself. He should have gotten his ass up on there. They could have spooned, they could have <laughs> stayed warmer from the body heat. I think there were a lot of mistakes with with what was going on there. I agree. That was also the first PG-13 movie I was allowed to see. Oh, wow. So I was going into that like super excited. I was like, guys, I'm going to see a sex scene. Yeah. And it really, I mean, I don't think looking back, it like really was not a sex scene. There Wait, was, like, are you serious? There was a, definitely a sex scene. Was there? Megan, I was a okay. Nine, we are watching. Titanic I was a nine-year-old boy. I specifically remember her hand goes up against the the window. Of oh, the, true. Actually, I remember that. And see, the thing is, like, obviously, they're not showing like insertion or something. That's not uh, quite. PG. It's not a good sex scene. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Titanic. Yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> is that a good? Is that a good for you? Okay, thank you. I want to make sure it got it got recognized. Um, but the suggestiveness of like the hand going up. Also, they really sweated up that car. That's true. Was that like a wet sauna or something? Like all of a sudden, like it's you know, they were ultra training. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're training for Black Canyon 100K or something. But like, I mean, outside, you gotta assume it's cold. I mean, there are icebergs there, and inside that car, it's like exceedingly steamy. It's like 120 degrees. It honestly looks a little bit unsafe. They might die of carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> So much wrong with that movie. Okay, so bringing energy into 2022, aside from Titanic, is uh, this quote that I wanted to read from Brian Cox. So Brian Cox is Logan on Succession, the big patriarchal figure. And if you remember, we talked about Jeremy Strong, um, who just actually won, I believe, the Golden Globe for Best Actor on a show for Succession. But he was criticized a lot by a bunch of people, including Cox, um, who said that his methods, which were a little bit um, intense, uh, were unnecessary. And... um, you know, Brian Cox was asked about this, including at being asked about his book, where he had a bunch of stories about a bunch of actors. And this ended his interview, I think it was with Deadline or something. And it is the greatest quote when he was asked about if he felt self-conscious about um, being honest. And this was his quote. No, no, listen, I'm too old, too tired, and too talented for any of that shit. Okay, that quote is a <laughs> rock star quote. I also think th- those variables might be correlated too. So old, talented and too tired and yeah. like all also come together in a certain way too but i think i don't know i think about that quote and i think talent is one of the things that i identify least with on those uh-huh. because i'm often like i'm not talented i don't deserve yeah. this talent but i think there's a certain talent in giving fewer f's in the world uh-huh. i think like i don't know i think that's something that we can all embrace for 2022 yeah and i think there's a huge um benefit in seeing all your various talents in ways that like our brains often don't let us you know particularly someone like you that you know, you were grown up and you constantly felt like you had to prove yourself and all these other things. Like, you know, so your obvious talents that anyone sees, including you now, um, are things that you could have embraced the whole time. But that energy, that swagtastic nature is so key, especially in Brian Cox's example. So what I love about this is everyone's trying to start some drama, some narrative around him that he doesn't control. And he's just like, no, no, none of that shit. And we can all kind of make that decision because in whatever we do, there are all these mini dramas that are playing out all the time that don't matter in five years. Like in coaching, like every coach, I mean, there's like coach beefs, for example. And it's like, who gives a fuck? Like it's not helping anyone. It's just people like making drama where it's not. Um, but that also probably applies in, in like jobs with a cubicle or academia or anything. I was going to say, look at any field. So like any field that even has just like 3000 followers on Twitter, like yeah. there is going to be insular drama. And I think there's something about the talent to weather that storm and the talent to kind of like stay outside of that. That's really, I mean, I think that is a part of like 
someone's overarching talent is the talent to just like wade through all of that and be like, yeah, no drama. That's llama. so true. Yeah. So like I've been uh, deep in the world of exercise physiology on Twitter, especially, but I am not an exercise physiologist. I just am a fan of the field. So it's a great position to be in because I'm starting to notice how all the personalities interact and how there seems to be clicks within the field. And it's super weird because like, I'm also realizing how small the field is. Like it's everyone kind of knows everyone and is all like, I'm sure there's stories behind the scenes that are just kind of like drama llamas. And uh, from the outside now, I'm like laughing at it. But like, if I was on the inside, it would be occupy every waking moment. I need to channel that Brian Cox energy, just be like, no, no, too old, too tired uh, and too talented for any of that shit. That's actually a fantastic point. So I love like the no drama llama approach from being in that actual situation. But I freaking, freaking love observing drama llamas from the outside because it's like, let's make this a Netflix documentary. (laughs) I feel like you can make a Netflix documentary on any random field and I would be captivated by like the stories and the different like relationships between people and the drama. Like I find that so fascinating, but it's, I mean, I think I also just, when I'm deeply involved in it, I'm like, let me out. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get so overwhelmed by it too. And I think it gets back to a lot of the narratives um, we experience. So that's why it's like the energy to bring into 2022 is that there are so many of these narratives about ourselves and what we're doing that we don't control and are just kind of like window dressing on a life, you know, humans making different things up. Um, And one place I was really thinking that that like camps down is in expressing our true voices, right? Because the, the idea of a true voice, whatever that voice is, whatever that perspective is, is that it won't be for everyone. Like, because by being genuine to yourself, like you're not least common denominator. I mean, I'm sure maybe that is genuine to some people, but to most it's not. And that really comes up for me when I'm talking to people that are getting into writing, let's say. Um, and in the writing process, as soon as they like fully engage their voice, you know, it's this beautiful process of like jokes and, uh, you know, just conversational um, writing and things like that. But then as soon as they go to an editor, the editor often takes that stuff out. Um, because the editor doesn't resonate with their voice, doesn't like their voice. And the point being, no, that's the only thing that makes them unique. That that is the part that matters. Um, and so, you know, I think embracing that part of yourself is so key. And I think also to investing in finding an editor that fits your style is really helpful. Because I think there's places like I have worked with editors before, whether it's like in scientific writing or, or other sorts of yeah. writing where they elevate my voice and they elevate the writing in a way that's like paramount to the piece. It's like so, so important. But I think it takes someone recognizing your voice and recognizing the message that you want to get across in general alignment on that. And I think like there can be amazing editors in that process. It just takes some time to like invest in that and to find one, but also to wade through, like, I think not to get dismayed yeah. early on. Like I think back to early like days in the like English. So like growing up as in high school or middle school and yeah. taking English classes and each year, like, and even actually in college as well, like grades in English class, I think should be given on like a pass fail sort of situation or even like a pass fail high pass sort of situation yeah. because I think the difference, like, clearly there's a difference between an A paper and a D paper in the world of English. But I think there's actually, like, I think the difference between, like, an A-plus paper and a B-plus paper is probably pretty subjective on the teacher's front. But the problem is, like, you have people, when I was in high school, when I was in college, I was concerned with going to medical school. So the difference between a B-plus and an A-plus, even though I wouldn't care about that now, like, in the PhD program I'm in, but back then, that was a big deal And I think you have to, like, I think there has to be a way in which we, like, allow creativity early on for young kids to develop their voices and to allow that to be like a less subjective process. Yeah. And it goes for everything. I mean, uh, you know, developing that voice takes constant reinforcement, right? Like, because you never start with a fully formed voice. It's something that has to 
form over time. So an English class totally makes sense. I remember my high school English teacher was like, you know, read read something I had written for the class that was like some joke or something. It's like, this is a, an example of a really distinctive voice. This is the type of thing to encourage in your writing. Obviously, that was the spur I needed. Um, but I got lucky that I did science in college and just wrote for myself in a blog because I could develop, you know, go through all the mistakes to develop the voice and didn't have the experiences I had later, which is, so I wrote for this really big legacy magazine. I don't want to use the exact name. And I got paid a ton of money for it. And it was my least favorite piece of writing I've ever done. So I, I was happy with what I turned in the first time. And, you know, all they did is they took out everything that was interesting and unique about my voice and just left the information. And I'm like, who cares? Like, you, there are places maybe where pure information conveyance is the idea. But I think other than that, not just in writing, I mean, this is a metaphor for everything else. So let that voice freaking shine. Like, um, actually, my article for next week it's all about dogs and death. So it's like really deep, but I, re I don't know, remember the exact joke, but I read it to Megan yesterday. And the, the joke was something along the lines of, you know, all runners know that we only poop in the, in yards that have an all lives matter sign. So it can be the smartest message on the property or something <laughs> like that. And the point being, I can do that now. And because Trail Hunter Magazine fully uplifts my voice in a way that's made me a better writer over time. Um, so problem is a lot of the times we have to do that for ourselves and stand up for our voices. And that's kind of what Brian Cox is doing there. You know, like you can't give a shit about, you know, people that start drama or, or criticize you or edit you in ways that you don't appreciate. And I think actually thinking about the reverse or like what happens in terms of like that teacher student relationship or yeah. editor author relationship too, is, is that like, if you see someone's voice, that's really authentic and unique, like elevate it. Yeah. Because I think like that matters. Like you're talking about your teacher, like that, that moment with your teacher has stuck with you forever. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that can be like a really helpful, I mean, it's hard to write. It's hard to put yourself out there. And the more encouragement we can give to unique voices, like the more it's going to elevate that process. Yeah. And I think a lot about the emails that we get into the podcast. So many of them are absolutely fucking outstanding writing. And the point being that I imagine that a lot of the people that write in, it's kind of stream of consciousness, but that is where their voice shines. It's when they are diminishing their own self-censorship. Um, and that's where it connects back to Brian Cox. It's like by diminishing your own self-censorship, you're allowed to fully shine. And yeah, it's not going to be for everyone, but that's kind of the point. And I think that that's where the magic happens in any sort of creative process and everything is creative. So Next time you're doing anything, whether it's writing, what even if it's doing something like at your work, make it uniquely you. Um, and don't let anyone tell you that uniquely you is not what they want, because that's just going to turn you into like a least common denominator drone. And you're never going to like fully embody who you could be. And accept yourself as it's that uniquely yeah. you version, because I think that's going to allow like that best voice to come through. This actually makes me think a lot. So a couple podcasts ago, we talked about Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah. who um, Claire Gallagher. So he's a, um, a Buddhist a Buddhist leader, and he's been he was 95 years old and has written like prolifically a lot of books. Yeah. And Claire Gallagher was the one who connected us with his book. And he has a quote that says, "To be beautiful means to be yourself." You don't need to be accepted by others. You need to accept yourself. And actually, this the sad piece of news on Thich Nhat Hanh is he died last week. Um, yeah. And he he just was a. I mean, again, he has so many beautiful thoughts like in the world of Buddhism. And we don't we don't personally practice Buddhism. Like that's not our like overall like dogmatic approach. But I think we yeah. have a lot of like Buddhist thoughts and underpinnings that work their way into coaching or like random podcast conversations on yeah. cereal or life or dogs or whatever. And I think his work has largely shaped a lot of what we think and just really grateful for his contributions to the world. Yeah. So big tribute to, to him. And I, I think uh, 
astute readers have maybe saw our book, um, The Happy Runner, and saw, oh, someone someone actually left a review that was critical saying, this is Buddhism for dummies. Um, <laughs> I'm like, first of all, amazing burn, truly appreciate it. Um, but second of all, like, I think that is kind of what we're trying to get at is this like oneness and how that applies to a- in athletic nature and why we always tie it to sports because it's a way to distill some of these narratives into very like specific outcomes. So, you know, we're, we're about to talk about death, for example. Um, and when we're talking about sports, you're talking about a bunch of little deaths where you have to, you know, put yourself out there, can dream these really big dreams and have them shot down fully and feel like there's no hope. And, you know, that's, I think why athletes can sometimes have this zoomed out, like universal perspective is because you have to get really comfortable with things that others might not have to, uh, but like all the freaking time and there's no limits to it. And I think the idea of accepting all these like miniature deaths in the path of life actually just prepare you. I mean, we are all going to die. And we talked about that before in the podcast. Like what a whole- Wait. What? <laughs> no. What a jarring thing to say. <laughs> no, it actually really is jarring though. Like I, I love the exercise that we've talked about before of like actually thinking of your death. Not like the act of dying. Okay, that's jarring. No, 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 not like the act of like however you die, like getting hit by a car or eating too much chocolate checks and having your <laughs> stomach distend and you know, which is is how I expect. But like the nature of what comes next, like the specifics of it. Um in the consciousness. Like for me, that is the most that was how I had my breakthrough when I was eleven of like, oh shit. I need to like try to do embody all these things because, you know, for me at the time, it was like a month long depression. Um, but like, you know, I think for me, const- thinking of it in a very specific lived way was really helpful because when you're living the concept of non-existence, uh, it doesn't compute. And non that non-computation process is like, okay, turn off the computer and turn it back on. See what re- reboots. The fact that you were thinking about that 11 uh, beyond the scale of rebooting is, is fascinating to me. And I think it's another window into your brain that's like, it's like thoughts on death and, and chocolate checks, right? They're like next <laughs> to each other side by side. But actually I would love to read. So Thich Nhat Hwan wrote about death. And I think like actually what he's saying is a beautiful thing about life. And yeah. so I would love to read this. He wrote... Um, has the most wonderful moment of your life already happened? Ask yourself that question. Most of us will answer that it hasn't happened yet, but that it could happen at any time. No matter how old we are, we tend to feel that the most wonderful moment of our life has not yet happened. We fear maybe it's too late, but we are still hoping. But the truth is, if we continue to live in forgetfulness, that is, without the presence of mindfulness, that moment is never going to happen. The teaching of the Buddha tells you clearly and plainly to make this the most magnificent and wonderful moment of your life. The present moment must become the most wonderful moment in your life. All you need to transform this present moment into a wonderful one is freedom. All you need to do is free yourself from your worries and preoccupations about the past, the future, and so on. Wow. Yeah. And to free yourself from the narratives that aren't in your control that have nothing to do with the moment. And I think actually that's what I find find to be sometimes very challenging is like, I have a lot of narratives swimming around in my brain for mostly for worse, but some for better. And I think the act of like actually letting them go is something I struggle with, but appreciating like the, the wonderfulness of the moment is something I don't. Yeah. So like one of my favorite parts of all Buddhist teachers Mm -hmm. is that in some way they talk about having already died. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, something that I don't know, we can all embrace a little bit, you know, is our impermanence in the process of feeling like our problems and everything are permanent because, you know, they really are. And like the narratives matter, like you can't just fully ignore them, but like by constantly anchoring to the impermanence, you can channel that Brian Cox energy, you know, Mm. that like how you don't give a shit um, about it. And the reason that you don't give a shit is not because it's not valid or it's not important. It's because there's bigger things going on here. And those, those little narratives are just like dust in the wind. 
wow, that's that's just a beautiful way of describing <laughs> that. I think for me though, I think it's both anchoring into the impermanence, but also like recognizing when those truly wonderful moments exist. And yeah. they can be like seemingly mundane stuff. So yeah. like, I mean, I know I've been out there running and you know, I have airplanes arms, airplane arms out there, or it's even like watching Addy do a zoomy around me. And it's like, this is the most wonderful moment. And I think anchoring into that and certainly doesn't happen have to happen all the time. Like we read through a lot of tough stuff stuff in life, but like maybe that happens once, twice a day, and that's a yeah. gift. And really just tuning in to that and appreciating that moment, even if it's only five seconds. But I think what Han would say is that it happens a thousand times a day. Yes. But know? I think like, I think it's a practice to get there, to build up to that. Oh, so like oh. maybe like at first you start recognizing it like three times a day. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of like running training where you start building the mileage and, you know, in a couple of months, these a hundred times a day, you're like, wow, this is wonderful. <laughs> well, it's like the Kurt Vonnegut quote, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is, but you have to say if this isn't nice, which is the hard part. And I struggle with it all the time. It's like, you know, remembering that in the moment. And that's why like in mindfulness, the like feeling the air on your skin or whatever is so powerful because it's like, wait, I wasn't even conceiving of that. And there's this whole like array of pleasure and, and mindfulness and understanding that's right at my fingertips. Um, and then there's obvious times like sex for, is a good example of like, that is not a passing thing. That is everywhere you can be in the moment um, or eating <laughs> maybe the best example of all. Like, I think one reason I love life so much is I do love eating so much. Like th th we, that's not just like a brand on the podcast, both Megan and I are the same way with that. And the idea being like, the reason is that like, even though I know it's impermanent and it's just like a passing mental thing that is like nerves firing, it's like, what a pleasurable thing to put a piece of chocolate checks in your mouth. <laughs> it's like, talk about like foodgasm. Or, it's the best. I'm thinking right now, Titanic, one example. Titanic. Yes, exactly. Okay. One example. I think coffee for me, another example. Recently, I've been like building into strength training. It's like yeah. one of the few things I can do right now with my heart and feeling powerful is like one of the most wonderful moments because you're like, Rawr, I yeah. can lift stuff. I feel like such like a, a swole bro, but it's like, I, that's one of those, I don't know. It's like one of those moments of tuning in and being like, this is awesome. Yeah. It's how I feel about jokes and humor too. Like um, whenever I write an article, I'll, I'll, Megan will occasionally hear me laugh. Right. And in the thing is I'm getting pleasure from my own voice, right? Like, I'm like, you do that a lot, actually. I'm masturbating like to my it. own yeah. voice. But the point is like, that's a conscious thing that I've had to do. Like if I'm writing and I'm like, oh yeah, how will someone perceive this or whatever? It's like, that's not going to bring out the best me. That's going to, it would bring it out of me where I don't do these things because I know there's little dramas in our field that some coach that thinks they know better is going to be like, what is that all about? Like, why is this person writing about dog dying and, and all lives matter sign and shit? Like, it's just, it doesn't make sense. But like, to me, that's where the magic, the pleasure, the joy, um, the miracles that Han talks about happen. So, um, Big tribute to Han. What yeah. a freaking beast. What an awesome human. I bet, I bet that's exactly how he wants to be described. A freaking beast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, he would embrace that. I feel like he'd yeah. be like, yeah, that's me. That's exactly him. Okay, so we're, our big uh, athletic topic today is going to be on athletic performance more generally, but through the lens of the amazing Netflix docuseries, Cheer. Okay, we are becoming big cheerleading fans. We are the biggest cheerleading fans. So even if you don't give a crap about cheerleading, we're going to broaden this out. And I think uh, we're going to make it so it matters. Also, watch the show. It's a great meditation on athletics more generally. Um, but I, we were watching the other day, and uh, you know, we just finished season two. And Megan was like, you know, you really need to reward aggressive tumbling for the future of this sport. This sport that we had never heard of, know nothing about, but Megan is now an expert on how it should be judged. I am invested. Actually, the opposite. I am not an expert. I know yeah. nothing about cheerleading, but I feel like from cheer is really fun just to like scheme and surmise about the future yeah. of where the sport is going, but also to appreciate, and we're going to get into this in a second, the athletic greatness that goes on during the sport. It's yeah. like 
these people are doing truly, I mean, I, and I think sometimes they take criticism because it's under the guise of like bows or big smiles on their face or like yeah. doing dances. But when you like get past that, these are some truly remarkable athletic feats. So remarkable. And, you know, for me, I've gotten really focused on the stunting, which is another thing that they do. Um, and yeah, and then there's- So you're you're on team stunt, I'm on team tumble. Is that yes, how it goes? that is how it goes. <laughs> I see that Megan was trying to cut me off from a joke that I had planned before the podcast started when she said that, but I'm not going to let you cut me off from this joke. <laughs> so this is just for the people out there that asked to hear everything. And this is a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, that he said just before he died, girl, you need to tighten up that pyramid. <laughs> is, that, is that worthwhile? It's totally worthwhile. Okay, great. Um, so a, a basic overview. I mean, we're going to be throwing out a lot of terms. They don't really matter. Basically, the sport of cheerleading is this heavily uh, gymnastic athletic uh, environment that involves a ton of different um, athletic demands, and it all gets distilled down into a single day. So the show cheer follows um, Navarro Community College and their coach, uh, Coach Monica Aldama, who is one of the best coaches in cheerleading history. And Navarro has basically rewritten um, cheerleading. It used to be actually that, when, from what I was reading, cheerleading has evolved to the point where like they're allowed to do these sorts of tumbles and stunts, yeah. whereas before that wasn't previously allowed. And they're kind of rewriting the, re the rule book in terms of like how many times you can flip your body and do all of these like really <laughs> cool things. But so, okay, so essentially Navarro College, they've been a dynasty for several years. So they've won 14 national championships and national championships in cheerleading are like within your own division yeah. and then five grand national championships and grand national championships are out of like all of the schools and that's a big deal and um so coach monica is she's been there i don't know how many years she's been there actually but it's been it's been many many years and she's kind of developed this overall system and has a way of recruiting athletes and just building the team up and investing in the team throughout this entire process but one interesting wrinkle that i think is unique about cheers we were getting through season two and we were like wait are there only two teams competing for the national championship? Because they follow both teams. The other team is Trinity Valley. And sure enough, there are only two teams competing for the win uh, at this national championship, which I thought was really funny. But then we, we searched more and basically... Navarro got so good and did so many advanced things that they split up the division into advanced and intermediate. And um, more schools are in their intermediate division, which doesn't allow quite as difficult of elements. Um, so that's pretty amazing to be so good that everyone's like, uh, no, that's exactly how I feel about Jim Walmsley. It's like, he doesn't need to go back to Western States because he's going to win by 90 minutes, no matter what anyone does based on past history. I thought I had fully thought we gotten duped, but I think once you watch these tumbling routines and these stunts, yeah. you realize like you're not getting duped. These people are just talented. They're so freaking good. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, cheerleading is a mixed bag. I mean, there, there's oh, it's not just the beautiful athletic things we're seeing. Obviously, we don't know almost anything about the sport. Um, and I think the sport is also subject to a lot of very valid criticism. And I think actually, I think that gets that idea. So, so I think cheerleading has some like unique properties to the sport that make it subject to a lot of valid criticisms. I think there's hero worship in the sport. Yeah. I think like especially after the Netflix documentary came out, these people that were I mean, they were elevated in the world of cheer are now elevated in the world of in general. Like, yeah. you know, we're talking about cheerleaders on a running podcast and that comes with it, like intrinsic issues and intrinsic challenges for these young athletes to navigate. But I think that's a bigger problem in general, because even before this documentary within the cheerleading world, we saw through it that these people are absolutely worshipped by young people. Um, and, you know, there's a, a part of season two and it's, it's incredibly tragic that one of the heroes of season one turns out to be a deeply damaged abuser. 
And um, you would have no idea, obviously, from watching, and, and his friends didn't even have any idea. Uh, but you see the connection there between the hero worship and how he thought he was viewed and how young kids viewed him versus um, what ended up like actually transpiring. And um, it gets back to hero worship in every field. Like I think about that in running all the time. Like, you know, you we put these people on a pedestal and often due to how fast they are. And it's so much more complicated than that. And once you actually know the stories behind the scenes, you're like, dude, don't hero worship. It definitely, definitely includes us. I mean, hopefully we share all of our flaws on here or most of them, many of them. Um, but like, you know, it, it includes everyone. I mean, and I think nowhere is that more clear than in doping, let's say in um, running. It's that, oh, when we elevate someone just because they ran a really fast time, think about that from a logical perspective, what you're actually elevating. If you take a thousand really talented people, like everyone's kind of similar talent levels and say, hey, the top five, 5% of you are going to be heroes. Um, and, and that this could form your whole life. And oh yeah, EPO makes an eight to 10% difference. What do you think scientifically, mathematically is destined to happen? So I, I think hero worship is a bigger problem in sports more generally, I in was, every field. I was actually going to say the exact same thing. I think when it gets down to it, you truly don't want to know how the sausage gets made in any field. Yeah, it's it's, I mean, it's horrifying. And I, I used that term in the last podcast, but I think it applies really well here too, is the idea that like, I mean, there's going to be challenges inherent. I mean, you dive deep into any field the way a Netflix documentary does, and there's yeah. going to be challenges. But I think right alongside those challenges, we can elevate the fact that this is like very, I mean, what these what these kids are doing, what these young adults are doing, very athletic. And there's a lot that we can learn too from the coaching principles involved yeah. in it. Um, what I think though is interesting is, and this kind of ties back into our prior conversation about being criticized and still prevailing beyond that criticism is Gia Tolentino actually wrote a piece for The New Yorker about Gia. Yeah. And I love her writing voice She's in general. The best. So she wrote Trick Mirror. I, I really appreciated her voice in Trick Mirror. And when I read her piece on Cheer, I was like, oh my gosh, she's being really hard on these people. Yeah. And she actually, she herself, Gia Tolentino herself was a cheerleader. So she probably knows way more about the field of cheerleading than Definitely. we do, obviously. Um, but so let me read her quote. And I think this also gets at the idea too, that like when you're writing these sensational pieces, like as she's writing for the New York, for the New Yorker, like you have to be a little edgy. And it's funny how like when I see someone described as this, I'm like, ah, this like yeah. bristles my soul. So this is what she wrote. Navarro's longtime coach is Monica Aldama, a brisk 40-something with highlighted hair, long-wear mascara, a Texas accent, and an MBA. She rules the program with a fearsomely controlled demeanor, interrupted by flickers of maternal warmth. And then she goes on, look at the girls, Aldama tells an executive for a cheer apparel brand who's come to get some footage of the team. Is that not incredible? The camera cuts to four pint-sized blondes who look from this angle like child pageant queens. They're wearing skin-tight glittery outfits with spandex choker collars, long ringlets, and huge bows. And my argument against, you know, that writing by Chia Tolentino is that when you look closely, actually, is what she described as the, the four pint-sized blondes is... The idea that those are athletes yeah. who've been working hard for this sport and have really, I mean, sure, they're immersed in this sport since age four and they probably don't know of a life outside of this sport, but like they're athletes and they've been working incredibly hard at their craft. And I think we should also elevate that too. Yeah. I mean, the hard part though, is it is a sport that is heavily focused on appearance. Like that's yes. how the judging mm -hmm. happens. Yeah. And that can likely create um, situations and uh, contexts that are very unhealthy for people's long-term growth. I'd be very curious, knowing what we know about running, let's say, where, um, you know, you can make that same criticism in art running where you'd be like at a track meet and you're like, hey, like, you know, some coach would be like, hey, look at the team. And it's a guy in split shorts and a girl in bloomers. Um, and like that, that would be jarring maybe to an outsider. Um, but we also know from running that that is jarring to the athletes too and can lead down negative paths that affect them for the rest of their lives. So I'd be curious to know how that um, plays out in cheerleading. Um, and we, you know, we absolutely love Gia Tolentino, but man, reading criticism for me, 
like it hurts my soul. Doesn't it hurt your soul? So yeah. Hard. I mean, it's like intuitively, I know all that stuff about cheerleading and it's obvious to me watching it, but like, I couldn't actually write those words yeah. about it. I mean, about a documentary that I feel passionate about. And I put, I, I don't know. There's something about like, it, it raises my heart, right? My whoop score when I read this stuff is like, yo, what's going on? The field of criticism in general is so interesting. I think about that all the time in the context of like intellectualism, um, that if you're intellectual, some part of like your learning teaches you that criticism is where like the magic happens, where you're applying your big brain to complex topics. And I'm like, well, I think like optimism and support might be the actual thing nowadays. Like maybe if there was a time when criticism uh, was the way, to, but I feel like our baseline right now is to think everything is breaking and everything sucks all the time. So uh, yeah, you know, that being said, I, I think what G, where Gia is coming from makes a lot of sense. I, but. I agree. But I think optimism might be the cutting edge wave, wave of the future as yeah. you're talking about. Maybe it takes like, and I think maybe in some situations, like being being able to be critical and optimistic takes an extra layer and maybe an extra layer of complexity that's beneficial. Yeah. I think optimism is punk rock as fuck. It's basically <laughs> the lesson here. Um, so it's the most athletic sport that you've ever seen. So from a pure physiological perspective, it, the routines are two minutes and 15 seconds and they are pure anaerobic power. I mean, the, the things they're doing is remarkable. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the NFL. So Tyreek Hill is the um, fast receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs. And he's widely considered like the fastest on-field performer that's ever played. So like when you see him on the field, it's like no one runs that fast. Um, and every time he gets like a jet sweep, so he's running to the outside as fast as he can, and he may run 20 or 30 yards. Often he'll be taken out for the next play, or you'll see him breathing so deeply. And I think it's one thing endurance athletes struggle to th realize sometimes is just how, like when fast twitch muscles are fully recruited in an anaerobic way, how it can fully exhaust the body like instantly. And that's what the cheerleaders are doing, but for two minutes, 15 seconds. It actually, that parallel reminds me of, and even two minutes, 15 seconds is kind of like a reasonable time for an 800 meter runner, yeah. um, perhaps like in high school or so. And and it reminds me of running the 800. And actually, there's there must be at least like 15 different times where um, these cheerleaders are performing and then they vomit immediately oh God, after yeah. their performance. And actually, I, I grew up, I did not love vomiting. Like yeah. vomiting kind of freaked me out as a kid. So I feel like they need to put like a vomit comment warning. And in addition to like all the other warnings that they put for this Netflix documentary, they need to be like excessive vomiting in the show. Yeah. But it truly, I mean, you go to a finish line of an 800 meter race and people are just vomiting everywhere. Yeah. And it's because of the nature of the anaerobic power and the nature of, of what the body is going through and something that's seen very similarly in these athletes as they perform. I need to research the exact mechanism of that because, you know, I don't coach the 800 in like, you know, pro athletes or anything right now. So I'm not exactly aware of why people vomit like that. And some athletes will vomit after everyone. It's not just what they eat. It's something, it's a physical response to the fatigue byproducts. Uh, my guess has to do with like pH of the bloodstream or something weird like that. Um, but not only are they doing that, they're doing that on the layer of extreme awareness of self, which is also, you know, sports in a nutshell, where they're doing choreography at what I assume is 180 heart rate, like, you know, dance routines and things like that mixed in with these amazing athletic achievements. Um, they're smiling and doing suggestive poses. It's, it's very interesting when you think about like, what the demands are on a body and brain at that point. And I think the unique demands on the brain, and this is something I don't think I could be a cheerleader and excel at this level because, so it's a team of 20. So 20 people are on what they call the band shell, which there's yeah. all this terminology in cheer, which I feel like we're like throwing around naturally. But when we first started watching it, we're like, WTF is a band shell. <laughs> and it's the place where they go to perform it. Actually, like it brings like the acoustic sound up forward. But um, that, that means that these teammates are relying on each other. Yeah. And the nature of how competitive this is, is if you take one little stumble, if you fall, if you trip, which I feel like happens to me 
in life on a daily, like yeah. on a daily basis, I'm following like once a day. That's just the nature of being my clumsy self. But you do that in a cheerleading competition and it wrecks the entire team's performance. So think about that internal level of pressure that must be happening with these kids. And the other thing too is, is that it's not like, running where you have like these series of races yeah. Daytona is which is like their national championship <laughs> is the big event and in the case of COVID they hadn't competed in 700 days yeah. leaving up to COVID so like you fall on your face once in 700 days and your team is screwed yeah think about it so Daytona like that is the big thing in cheer every all it's the only competition that we're aware of watching the show I think it might be the only one it's like the national championships everyone is focused solely on that maybe it's like the western states of cheerleading um and think about the, the demands of perfection. So it's 20 people. Maybe each of them is doing 100 complex skills in each routine. And if even one of those complex skills messes up, their team is you know ruined for, for that tournament, most likely. And that is a lot of pressure. And so I think it brings in a lot of lessons about performance at any event, especially for people like runners. So do you want to get to four lessons about pressure, belief, and fear? Yes, let's do it. And I think let's let's start out actually with the idea of preparation and practice, because okay. I feel like preparation and practice, like if you drew a some sort of like tree on the relationship with like fear and pressure, I feel like preparation and practice like fit in there nicely. Yeah. And what I loved about Navarro is they are doing, I mean, they are controlling for basically every variable they can control for yeah. in a way that's reasonable. And I think that's the important caveat there is sometimes like your brain can go overboard trying to control for everything. And at some point you have diminishing returns on that. It's like, it's like running at some point, you know, running beyond, you know, 120 miles per week is might just have diminishing returns depending upon the oh, athlete. Yeah, or running over 40, or 40 miles. 40, I was going to say 50 miles a week. And, and yeah. it's so athlete specific. And I think that's where having a coach helps. But Monica Aldama for cheer, I mean, she buys a quote unquote band shell for the team so they can practice on a stage that's exactly similar yeah. to Daytona. So they can, so they can replicate the, the kind of overall experience. This thing cost $100,000 for a small community college in Texas. And she's just doing it so that one more variable is controlled for. Um, and I, I think that the parallels there with running are so interesting because, you know, how you balance like wanting to go for really hard routines and wanting to be prepared versus like the risk of injury or failure and or doing something that is um, unlikely to succeed is exactly what we're considering in training all the time. Um, and in every other field, when we balance preparation versus a fully lived life versus probability of success and the range of probabilities overall. I think about that constantly, actually, in the field of medicine. I was just listening to a podcast with Michael Gervais. He's a psychologist, a sports psychologist. I, I actually, I really enjoy listening to his podcast. And he was talking to an ER doc, um, Dr. Dan Dworkis. And I think the ER is a place in medicine where you think about that constantly. Yeah. So Dan was talking about the idea that, you know, a patient comes into the ER and you don't know what's going to be going on with that patient. So some patients come into the ER and I think the cool thing about humanity is you treat everyone in the ER. Yeah. Like there's a place for everyone to go. Some patients just need like what he calls shoes and a sandwich. He had a great quote on this. And then other patients are, it's life-threatening condition and you have 30 seconds to respond. Yeah. And imagine the level of practice and preparation and adrenaline control that has to go into being a doc in those situations. Oh my gosh. And he talked about it himself. So he would actually do hill reps um, outside his home. <laughs> and as he finished the hill rep, he would go through his brain, like all the different preparation skills he would need for a situation in the ER. And I think it's a beautiful way to practice. I've actually done this sometimes with presentations is 
if you are in those like situations of adrenaline and you're like trying to prepare yourself for those, like put yourself in a adrenaline situation. So like, you know, do a presentation like as you're hiking and you're like, your heart rate is high or you're like your breath rate is high and see if you can practice controlling that. And I think it's, I think it's just really cool to think about all the different creative situations you can put yourself in to be better prepared and like have that practice for the big day, the big event, whatever it is. That's why I go to the zoo and and jump into the lion container right as I want to say, woohoo, welcome to the Summer Call Play podcast. It really gets me going for the podcast. Um, but yeah, amazing. Yeah. You know, I think being comfortable with pressure is one of the main parts of all of this. Like it, it's, it really requires a lot of, um, you know, focused preparation. So as it relates to running specifically, I think there's a ton of great takeaways. Um, and, and all of it feeds back to and how the body adapts. This isn't just the brain. So fueling may be the big one. A lot of athletes will only fuel like they will on race day on race day. And it's like, they're wondering why they're crapping their brains out. It's like, you need to go through that same exact practice on some of your long runs, not all of them necessarily, but like, you know, let's say if we like our athletes sometimes to have a gel every 20 minutes during a big event, like you need to practice that, make sure it works, make sure it works, not just when you're running moderately or whatever, make sure it works when you're nervous and your body is all hyped up and you're getting ready for that Daytona band shell. Um, that's one of the big things I've learned. Like I don't need race sims for um, like the physical training, I need them to see, okay, when my heart rate is 10 beats per minute higher because I'm I'm dealing with anxiety and stress, good anxiety and stress, but how does my body respond then? That question matters. And other variables that I think about in terms of running are like course specific training. So like if you can spend time training out on the course, that's actually ideal. But I mean, other ways would be like mimicking the terrain of the course, like mimicking the environment of the course, even shoes, um, gear. I have some athletes that like go out and do long runs in their actual race kit yeah. just to figure out like, does something chafe? How do I feel in well, this? Does this make me feel powerful? And I think it's a good, good race sim. That brings a couple things to mind for me. One, when you're choosing shoes, you're choosing them for the last 10 miles of whatever event you're doing, not the first 10 or even the first 50 if it's longer. So, you know, the, the hard part becomes, unlike the cheerleading, we can't, they call them full outs when they do the full two out, two minutes, 15 seconds. We can't do that for a lot of our races. I mean, almost any of our races, because the race day is a special thing for your physiology. So make sure you're understanding how your body is going to react under that. So like, we like our athletes to wear cushion shoes because we have seen much better performances over time at the end of races. So that really matters. And with the course, we like athletes to do a little little bit more vert than they'll see on race day. Because as you get farther in an event in a way you can't simulate, the downhills will rip up your legs. Um, and you're not going to realize that until you get to mile, whatever, near the end of a race. And they're like, oh, my quads are gone are fully fucking toasted. And um, so with running, you have to be a little bit more strategic. And I think actually the same the same variables or the same principles don't necessarily apply to mileage. So, I mean, it's sometimes hard to prepare for, I mean, it's obviously like impossible in training to prepare for mile 80, a 100 yeah. mile race. And that's where like that belief and faith has to come in. And I think another interesting point on belief and faith, and this is something I'm curious about, is understanding either your own or an athlete that you're working with, like their underlying personality characteristics yeah. as it relates to practice and preparation. Because I know I've been there myself and I've certainly coached athletes that are like this, that they will have almost everything. I think in many situations, it's impossible to have 100% everything dialed in, but they will have what I perceive to be like 95% of things dialed in. They are so ready to go. Yet they view that as a 50%. Like they're like, I'm not ready. And I think it takes either finding a coach who understands that or like understanding the intrinsic 
like principles or like your intrinsic personality to say like, oh no, I'm ready. And I think that's like a great gift you can give to someone or can give yourself is trusting the practice and preparation. And there's some people that might just never get there. And that's part of this coaching journey too. It's hard overall. I mean, I I think often swap, like our approach is painted as lower mileage. And the point is we are not low mileage whatsoever. We are just trying to give athletes the training they need to actually succeed. We're not training, we're not training their like ego to think that they're ready in some way that they're already prepared. Like we're trying to get them prepared and that's it. Not, you know, be like, Hey, we're going to take extra risks just so you feel ready. I mean, you know, I had a athlete that I coached once who had this amazing, incredible breakthrough and just like a month later left coaching because they, they had a, a poor performance for them and didn't feel ready for it. And the point being like, wait, wait, those are all connected. And a bad day doesn't mean that it's just, well, that athlete was probably, you know, in that state of mind where they needed to do more for their brain, not so much their body. So understanding that that line for yourself and for athletes you coach is really important and being direct. Like that's one thing in coaching is like when we tell athletes they are ready, they are fucking ready. Um, and hopefully, you know, Monica really builds that in over time and cheer. And Monica does, and this is um, segueing into our second point, is the idea that I think after practice and preparation comes the idea of a prepared attitude yeah. and having that belief in yourself, having swag in yourself. And that's something that I think is embodied across a lot of the cheerleaders in cheer. And, um, you know, they, they're like, they, as they walk to that band, gel. They're like, let's hold our heads high. Let's get ready to compete. Let's like, let's walk out there. Like we own it. And I think that's part of the process too, is understanding that like thought follows action and that you can set those actions in motion by like holding your head high by walking to the start line of a race with swag and being like, it's time to go. Even if like part of your brain doesn't feel that way, which I think is very natural for a lot of people, because like trusting the idea that thought follows action, it can help set that in motion. I mean, can you think about the anxiety these cheerleaders are feeling? Like I was watching this in my- You had anxiety. It was so bad. It was so bad for me. Like they're all thinking about their failure when they're going up there, but you can't see it. They're there. That's not because they've all, you know, had to fail a million times to get there, but they're like, you know, I'm going to nail this because if they let the idea in that they're not like, of course they're not going to, especially in that complex and narrow margins of an event where you have to be perfect. That's so hard. Actually, one of my favorite interactions in cheer was there's a cheerleader, Gabby, who's, she's a hero as we all call yes. in the cheerleading world. And she had a tough practice and Maddie, another cheerleader came in to console her. And the, the wisdom that she gave to Gabby was Gabby, you are the baddest bitch. And you yeah. need to trust that even in moments when things aren't going well. And I think that's like, that's the gift you can give to others and the gift that you can give to yourself. Actually, this is totally random, but as we were going to bed last night, we said goodnight. And I was like, goodnight, David, you're the baddest bitch ever. And it was just like, such a weird moment. <laughs> well, our- the best part about it was you had, I thought you had been sleeping for 20 minutes and I went up to do my last pee right before I was going to bed just to, you know, finish off. And Megan, as I get back into bed, just from her deep slumber, is like, you're the baddest bitch and then <laughs> off to sleep. And I'm like, yeah, that's the energy you need. And sometimes you need that from teammates, but like we need to give that to ourselves um, the most of all. And I think what's really powerful is Maddie, the person that was saying this to, to Gabby, um, she earlier in the season went through the ultimate low where she was like having the biggest crying fit for messing something up. But it took going through that to understand that like, yeah, if you don't have that bad bitch mentality, you're never going to be a bad bitch. Like that you have to have the mentality before it'll ever be confirmed in performance. That's so true. And we can actually play game i feel like um we could play like a love it or leave it game of where does this quote come from so there's a quote there's a quote and it's walk as if you're kissing the earth with your feet and the question is that does that come from tick me out juan or does that come from the cheer documentary um (laughs) so okay let me guess um cheer is it cheer no no (laughs) it's not of course it's not but that's i mean that is the principle here is like whether it's a buddhist principle or whether you're like walking onto the band shell for a cheerleading competition is like 
walk as if your feet are kissing the earth and do that and do that repeatedly again and it'll get easier over time walk as if you're giving the earth an orgasm (laughs) right like stomp into the earth (laughs) oh my god maybe that's like that actually that does not sound sexual gently caress the earth with your feet actually perhaps that we should that perhaps that's how we should describe running biomechanics gently caress the earth with your feet so (laughs) reduce injury in the process and give the earth an orgasm all the way to completion um (laughs) yeah and i think the big thing here is that otherwise failure will just confirm your expectations and so like that's kind of what i was talking about with the athlete um a great example in the nfl was patrick mahomes this weekend um orchestrated one of the greatest comebacks ever and i thought what was really powerful about that is that if you look at the win probabilities which they have really defined it got down to like 0.2 percent because they got the ball with 13 seconds left and down by three and in 13 seconds he drove the team all the way down the field for a field goal the point is patrick mahomes knows at some level that there's a 0.2% probability. Like he's not, he's incredibly brilliant. Um, that's how he's like already one of the best quarterbacks ever. Um, but in his head, he knows that this is going to be one of those 0.2% times. Uh, you have to b- embrace the improbable fully and completely to make any of it possible in the first place. That's, I think that actually that story encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about here. So let's go on to the third point. So the third point is the idea that fears are normal and that that nerves are also your friend. Yes. So as they were going through this cheer season before Daytona, they wound up writing their fears in a bottle and throwing it out into the ocean <laughs> and letting them all go. And I thought that was a, I thought that was a powerful scene for many reasons, but I think it also underscores the idea that we all have fears. Yeah. And I think they feel so salient and scary, especially for me at like 1am when I wake up and I'm like, what is going on in the world? What's going on in my brain? And it's a normal process of life. And I think the only way to like truly overcome them or be one with them is just to love them. Yeah. And also to put words to them, to know what you're actually thinking. And this gets back to another, an actual Han quote. The only way to ease our fear and be truly happy is to acknowledge our fear and to look deeply at its source. Instead of trying to escape from our fear, we can invite it up to our awareness and look at it clearly and deeply. Um, and I think about that all the time. I mean, it goes for big things, obviously, like we're talking about like racing or life things that you're worried about or whatever. But often I think about it too in workouts. Like I used to, like, let's say I was doing a three minute interval. Often I get like really nervous and scared before it. And it took me being like, what are you fucking scared of? Like, this is just a nervous system signal that you can be, you know, whatever you're getting during the interval that you can be aware of and treat as your friend. And as soon as I did that and wrote down what I was actually scared of, which is like going a little bit slower, you know, not progressing as much as I want, whatever, I was able to gain power over it. And so, you know, the writing your fears in Mm -hmm. a bottle and throw them into the ocean, something we can all do. Actually, when you talk about writing things down, that's something that I've done a lot. Yeah. And I got, so I saw actually, there was a New York Times article with Amanda Gorman who wrote, she was the inaugural poet and she looked confident and radiant up there (laughs) reading her. I mean, I think she just kind of wowed the nation when she went and did her inaugural poetry, but she actually wrote a piece for the New York Times about fear and fear leading into that event. And I identified with that as a fellow, like one person staying up at 1 a.m. thinking about all my fears. I read this and there was something about it that really struck me. So um, this is her piece. And the piece was called Why I Almost Didn't Read My Poem at the Inauguration. And it was a guest Mm. um, editor piece or a guest writing piece for the New York Times. And she wrote, the night before I was to give the inaugural committee, my final decision felt like the longest of my life. My neighborhood was eerily quiet in that early morning dark, though I strained my ears for noise to distract me from the choice that lay ahead. It felt like my little world stood still. And then it struck me. Maybe being brave enough doesn't mean lessening my fear, but listening to it. Hmm. I closed my eyes in bed and let myself utter all the leviathans that scared me, both monstrous and minuscule. What stood out most of all was the worry that I'd spend the rest of my life wondering what this poem could have achieved. There was only one way to find out. By the time the sun rose, I knew one thing for sure. I was going to be the 2021 inaugural poet. I can't say I was completely confident in my choice, but I was completely committed to it. And then she goes on. 
And yes, I am still terrified every day. Yet fear can be love trying its best in the dark. So do not fear your fear. Own it. Free it. This isn't a liberation that I or anyone can give you. It's a power you must look for. Learn, love, lead, and locate for yourself. And that quote about fear can be love trying its best in the dark. That was the one. And I was like, Amanda. I mean, clearly she's a brilliant writer, but that was what I like really identified with. Yeah. And I mean, think about anything we care about deeply. And that's usually where our fears lie too. Like, you know, I have a fear that like, like maybe on a lesser scale, I I won't do good, great in running or something on a bigger scale, you know, even though I know, like I have a fear that like you'll leave me or something. And the point is like, I love you so much that like, that's why I feel that way. Right. Like, and that, that fear is something that like you have to get comfortable with because it's probably the flip side of how love feels. And that's really hard. I mean, it gets back to the cheerleaders too. You know, they love their team. They love the idea of winning this national championship. It's all really fucking hard. That's, that's beautiful. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that first of all. But also I feel like the, when there is fear, it's also this chance to investigate it and to learn more. And it's like, investigate where that comes from. And I feel like as you do that and unravels like all these interesting tendrils about yourself and like the, the nature and the origins of where that comes from. And I think in some, in some situations that can actually be a helpful process of being human. Wouldn't that have been a great place to be like, and David, now I have something to tell you uh, on the podcast. No. (laughs) Um, But it especially goes for running. So like sleepless nights before your races, don't worry about that. We talked about it before. Tons of the best races ever come after sleepless nights. Um, But also goes for everything in training. Like I think as soon as you start to worry, or as soon as you start to invest yourself in your own athletic future, the uncertainty of it, every time you get a niggle, it can be like the end of the fucking world. And the point is, it's not you're okay. That's not a sign that you shouldn't do the sport. That's a sign that you love the sport and you should lean into the love uh, and away from like the darkness. And I think talking about it openly with like the community, coaches, parents, friends, et cetera, anyone out there who's like willing to listen and to engage on it. I think for me in the past, I always felt like vocalizing my fears would make them, it would like manifest my destiny in a weird sort of way. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the opposite is now true. And it's taken Honestly, it's taken courage for myself to step up there and voice my fears. And it's been, I think, something that's been helpful over the last couple of years. Yeah. I think the monster under the bed is actually just like a, a big old creature that wants to be friends. No, right? it's actually Rihanna. Was that her song? I think that was with Eminem, right? Like, I think it was one of my favorite songs. Monster yeah, yeah. Him. It's a good song. Yeah. Oh, man. So Rihanna's under all of our beds? The baddest bitch on the planet? Right? Let's talk about that more. Um, and then the final little point is, um, the idea of feeling pressure versus applying pressure. Um, we all feel this pressure. Like you talk about sheer, it's like, oh my God, everything counts on this one, these one athletes getting out there. And coach Vante, who is the coach of Trinity Valley, um, talks about the goal being to apply pressure, not to win necessarily, but to go out there, do your best and let it be known that, Hey, if someone else performs better than you, when you do your best, that's okay. I think actually one of my favorite things is being out there racing and knowing that I'm putting down a race that I can be proud of, that I'm out there doing my best. And I've had situations like that where I get passed, you know, I get past sometimes standing still on a hill where I'm like, I am crushing this. I'm selling this. And someone passes me. And in those situations, it's like, yeah, good on her, good on him. You know, they, they, they deserve that. And I, I think there's something powerful about just putting your best out there and applying that pressure and not worrying about what's coming up. And talk about, you know, I just mentioned Black Canyon. You'll get the Black Canyon start list right now. You know, yeah, we wow. Have a, and we have a lot. We have some great athletes doing it that are ready to win. But the point being, like, you'll get that start list, and every single one of them is going to be scared shitless. You know, they're going to feel that fear. And the lesson there is not 
can you win? Can you get this golden ticket? Like that's an interesting question for the narratives. What's actually an interesting question for like a lived experience, can you go out there and give it your best shot? And what we find is that if an athlete gives it their best shot, usually everything works out as it should. But if it doesn't, that doesn't matter. That is not the point. The point is just to get out there and apply that fucking pressure. And have fun in the process too. Yeah. And I think like the act of applying pressure to me is very fun. Like there's a, no, like, yeah, yeah. a little bit of like a devious, I get like a little like, laugh, <laughs> yeah. I'm applying pressure. And I think embrace that element of it. Yeah, too. nothing to lose. I mean, fun is the big idea behind all this. How can you actually have fun when you're under these high pressure states? And the point is like, I think fun is like everything. So yeah, as we always say, keep it back to fun. Um. Awesome. You want to do the scientific study of the week? Let's do it. Sexy science of the week. Yeah. I love I love this new addition to the podcast. It's really fun, actually. From I mean, we, we try to work a lot of science in here. Yeah. But I think from a research perspective and a continued learning perspective, it's selfish for us because it's just continued learning. And it's yeah. fun. If you look at our text message list, it's like eight scientific studies without any commentary going back and forth each week. Uh, so we have lots of interesting topics. But I think this one is especially interesting. So this was in uh, the end of 2021 in the Human Reproduction Journal. Um, and it introduces some fascinating ideas about how the endocrine system works. And this is actually from a group of researchers that I've, I've, I've met with them actually a few times from Penn State. Um, and they do work on the female athlete triad. And in this paper in specific, they were looking at um, oligomenorrhea and amenorrhea. So okay. essentially irregular menstrual cycles or loss of a menstrual cycle. And what are the energies? So we largely know that oligomenorrhea and amenorrhea are connected to low energy availability or not having enough energy to power the body um, as you look at both caloric intake and exercise or energy expenditure. And the answer largely lies within increasing caloric intake. Yeah. And they wanted to quantify exactly how much that could be um, and what is the process in a 12-month intervention. Yeah, it's so cool. In, actually, I was thinking oligomenorrhea, not a term I'm that familiar with. The only other word I can feel think of that's similar is oligarch, like in Russia. Like, I wonder what the root there is. I really need to research that. We probably have- I think oligo is few, right? Wait, what? Yeah, I think that's what oligo is. If you for. know that- I don't know. If I, if, if, if that's right- I, I don't think it's right. If you If that's right, I hate you. Well, because you've never studied Latin, you don't know, like- <laughs> You're so smart, but I think it would be very funny if it's something different too. We probably have some, we'll, we'll check it. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of really cool things. I, first, I think the uh, name of the study protocol is very fascinating. It's called the REFUEL study, but the word REFUEL is in all caps. Uh, how fantastic is that? I thought it, so I, because it was in all caps, yeah. I, yesterday I furiously looked for what it, I was like, this must be an acronym. It's in all caps, but I couldn't actually find an acronym associated with REFUEL. Plus it would have to be a really long acronym. Yeah. So my viewpoint on this is they just wanted to say REFUEL. <laughs> with like a lot of exclamation, which is why it's in all caps. It's kind of like us writing woohoo. Yeah, they're, so they're embracing the, their voice. We should just start. I mean, we start podcasts with woohoo. This should be the refuel. Yeah, yeah. It's totally up our alley. Um, also, it, it brings up a lot of interesting thoughts about uh, acronyms more generally. Like, I tried to search everywhere. I even looked at their grant application to try to find what refuel was, and I couldn't. Um, so <laughs> it's like because I'm so conditioned by scientific studies to always be saying any word in all caps means that there is something I need to understand underneath that word. Actually, one of my scientific mentors at Stanford, and she's a she's does a lot of work in the field of writing. She and she has this, this suggestion that I think is great. She says not to use acronyms unless they're well known yeah. um, across all of the population, not just within that like small subset of your field. In any time now, so yesterday I was reading a scientific article, and there are like fifty acronyms, yeah. and this was in a field that I was like kind of versed in. And I kept having to scroll back to the front and being like, "What the heck does this acronym <laughs> mean?" Like, 
mean? So if you're in the scientific writing world, give your readers the gift of like not communicating in big acronyms that no one knows. Sometimes they're like so long too. But I think actually what I found interesting, so in this, so amenorrhea, yeah. they use that, they used amen to refer <laughs> to, to amenorrhea. And it kind of made me chuckle actually. I was like, amen. Yeah. Maybe it's just my history with the Catholic church, but it's like praying that the period comes back. It's like, please, please give me a period. But also a uh, female athlete triad. Yeah. Sometimes I'm a reviewer on like triad papers. And so the, the acronym for triad for female athlete triad is just triad. But some people, especially like foreign researchers, write fat. Oh, and no. it makes it, it actually gives me a, a funny laugh as I review papers. <laughs> yeah. I like it. It's very positive. It's very like, uh, you know, body positive in a, in a really good way. Um, so the mechanism, the methods of this study, they took 76 ex exercising women with menstrual disturbances. Um, they were split into two groups, um, one of which increased energy intake, uh, 20 to 40% above baseline energy needs and 36%, 36 of which, um, maintained energy intake um, and saw how that unfolded over a period of 12 months. And I think what I was curious about actually in this study was that they looked at the um, the baseline body fat percentage of the people that were having either irregular or lost periods. Yeah. And it was actually higher than the traditional. So there are numbers out there about like essential body fat of how much body fat is needed to sustain a period. Yeah. And this was, and I, I don't like talking about in terms of like giving exact numbers when it comes to body fat. Definitely. I don't think it's like a great practice, but um, this number was like, like pretty far above that number. And it gets at the idea that oftentimes like it's not just like essential body fat it can be things related to like within day energy deficits it can be related to and that's related to the timing of fuel it can be related to like carbohydrate intake there can be a lot of different reasons for an athlete missing periods yeah. um, outside of just like pure body fat percentage and you know that comes back to how this whole topic is connected to men or any athlete as well Amen. Uh, let's bring it, make sure men. No, but the idea being that um, in a 2017 study in the Scandinavian Journal of Sports Medicine, they found that menstrual disturbances, even controlling for energy intake, were associated with higher within day deficits. So you had deficits for more often. So, like, let's say an athlete that does more fasted running or something like that. But there's a 2018 article in the same journal that had the same findings for male testosterone levels and um, cortisol being out of whack. And so the idea is the same mechanisms that we're seeing in women athletes with menstrual disturbances are applying to male athletes with hormonal issues. Um, we just don't have the, uh, feedback mechanism, but they were still causing some physical, physical issues and some performance issues in many different ways, not just in running. And so, um, you know, this, this study I think is extremely relevant for all athletes, even if it's more specifically applicable to female athletes. I agree. And I like how you're highlighting that. I think one limitation of this study, well, actually there's two that I can think of, oh, there's a few that I can think of, but <laughs> the main one, sorry, sorry, researchers. The main one that I can think of is that they actually had pretty high dropout. So this was a 12 month randomized control trial and they had 57% dropout over 12 months. Um, with 40% 40, 40 dropout at six months. Fortunately, when you looked at the dropout, it was similar across both groups. Mm -hmm. And the characteristics of patients that were dropping out were also similar across both groups. And they did what they call an intent to treat analysis and also a sub-analysis that allowed us to look at this data in a rigorous way. So I think the findings of the study are still fantastic, but that's something to note is yeah. the high dropout that we saw in the study. The other thing to note too, and I thought this was interesting and I couldn't find where it was commented on, was the study actually ended in 2014 and it's being published seven years later in 2021. And so I just had some curiosities as a researcher. About yeah. And, that. Or I, I'd be curious if other studies have already come out of this process. And this is like looking at the data um, in a different manner. Uh, but the findings were absolutely fascinating. So um, the increased energy intake group was much more likely to gain menstrual cycle as we would expect, 64% um, versus 19% for the people that maintained. Um, and in many cases, they fully reestablished a healthy menstrual cycle from amenorrhea, which is life changing. Like, you know, that 
if that's 64% of participants, that is like their entire lives and their, their future is being fundamentally altered in a positive way. That is so cool. And maybe what's coolest of all is that it wasn't a massive intervention. It wasn't like they fundamentally changed how they approached food, lifestyle, and exercise. They just increased their energy intake a little bit. They got to eat a little bit more and their health went you know, through the roof comparatively. And we actually, we had a debate on this um, <laughs> before we before we started recording this podcast. And you wanted to talk about the the number of calories that was, um, like the average number of calories that it was taken to bring back the menstrual cycle yeah. or to like reestablish a, a, um, a more controlled menstrual cycle in the case of oligomenorrhea. And I actually, I, I kind of pushed back against that because I think actually, if you look at this study and you compare it to the population of people that we're talking to, our population that we're talking to actually probably has higher baseline energy needs yeah. given the training characteristics of our population. And baseline energy needs can be, you know, there's a lot of different factors that go into that, including training, including base metabolic rate, including a number of different things. And um, so I think it's actually a little bit lower than what we would expect for like probably our listeners. But I think at the same point in time too, it's low enough that it doesn't feel overwhelming. Yeah. Sometimes I think if you go to an athlete, athlete and you're like, you need to increase energy intake by 20 to 40%, um, especially an athlete that might be struggling with eating. Yeah. Like I can see that emoji of like the head exploding and be like, I have to do what? Yeah. That feels like a lot. But so are you going to let me, can I say the number? Yeah, I think it's okay. But understand that I just, I kind of bristled at this at first because as coaches, we don't love thinking necessarily in terms of calories. And I think this low, this number is actually a little bit lower than we might see in listeners that we're talking yeah, okay. to. Okay. So the reason I want to mention this number is that it underscores a general principle, not an actual quantitative intervention. So the actual number is that it just took 330 calories plus or minus 65 calories to regain menstrual regularity. That is uh, a chocolate bar, you know, and it's that, a delicious chocolate bar with a lot of iron. I think yeah, about yeah. like a dark chocolate bar. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it would or, be tasty or whatever other tasty thing you want to think of. It's a little bit of that uh, crunchy cheese or, or something. And that means that you don't need to fundamentally alter your life necessarily. If you're struggling with this, you just need to throw a little bit more fuel in the fire. As we talked about before with the, uh, uh, you know, association with overtraining as well. Like if you are struggling with this and it does, uh, you know, obviously women have the menstrual cycle as feedback loop, but for men, if you're struggling with sex drive and sexual function or erections or your energy in the mornings or, or something, and you feel like this might be something that you can do add a little bit more. Um, you know, and what I, what I often say is like, oh, you know, that afternoon window where you might not eat, that's when to add something fun. Like, you know, just, and you don't need to quantify it, but the idea of adding, of just adding in a qualitative manner um, doesn't need to be, okay, every meal needs to be so much bigger. And like, I'm going to not feel like myself, um, which can be overwhelming to some people. That's a great way to approach it if you can. It's, hey, I just get to eat another chocolate bar. How cool is this? Yeah. Or adding can be that step. Like sometimes I think thinking about like 20 to 40%, it's like, oh my gosh, overwhelming. But thinking about like 10%, then 10%, then 10%. Yeah. So it can also be stepwise too, which I think that is something that's interesting. And, you know, that's a air, air bars there. It, for some people, it might be if you add a hundred calories over the course of a year per day, that makes a huge difference. And, you know, I think often when people get amenorrhea, they feel like they're at the bottom of the well because how they try everything and it doesn't come back. It sometimes does take a while. Like this, these 330 calorie number is averaged over 12 months. That's a lot of intervention. Um, and, you know, at minute month six, if an athlete doesn't have their period back, they can be like, I've made these changes and nothing has happened. And that's the hard part about the endocrine system that we're all dealing with is it doesn't operate on the timescales we enjoy. I appreciate you making that point. And it actually, it makes me think too. So I've coached athletes before that I've really like tried hard. They've invested in these interventions yeah. and I'm so proud of them. And I think sometimes the struggle can be is they go and get a bone density scan and they look at their bone mineral density, or they go and get an inside tracker panel and they look at how their endocrine profile is behaving. Yeah. And sometimes they don't see any changes even after months of making interventions. And I think what's, 
what's I'm curious about and what the researchers actually highlighted in this paper is sometimes there's a lag too yeah. between making this intervention and the body has inertia. And sometimes it takes the body time to catch up. And the, um, the researchers actually looked at total T3 in the study and they looked at what happens to total T3 numbers in athletes that are getting their menstrual cycle back. And so what is T3? A total, it's a, uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm speaking doctor terms. It's a thyroid hormone. Perfect. Yeah. And um, thyroid is involved in a lot of different processes in the body. Um, so this is, this was one of their quotes from the paper. Body weight and percent body fat increased gradually throughout the study, whereas total T3 did not demonstrate an increase until the end of the study, suggesting that there may have been a delay in the metabolic and hormonal response to increase energy intake. And I see that constantly um, as a coach and also in the medical world too, is this delay that happens. And it can be challenging as an athlete to experience that delay. And what I tell athletes is this is expected and just keep swimming. Yeah. Like, you know, just keep going through it. Just keep doing it because the body will catch up. In some situations, it just takes time. And that applies to everything. In training, we often talk about the endocrine system and nervous system, um, because I think a lot of what we're trying to do in training theory is harness these two systems to then feed back into the aerobic and musculoskeletal system. Uh, the complicated part is we only see the aerobic and, mus aerobic and muscular system for the most part in weekly, monthly training. Uh, these other things are moving beneath the surface with waves that we can barely detect, um, much like, let's say, ocean currents. So on the surface of the ocean, you see waves and it's, everything's moving. But under the deep ocean, all of that water is moving very, very slowly. And that's like one of the biggest scary things about climate change. I'm going way off on a This tangent. is an amazing analogy, though. Yeah, yeah. So like, this is my background. This is my uh, previous academic life, um, is that as the ocean currents change on the deep level, uh, every the amount of carbon being sequestered is going to greatly change. So there's inertia in this broader system because the ocean currents are are stabilizing things um, in the deep ocean. On the top of the ocean, everything looks like it's changing rapidly, but it's actually you know just surface level. That's kind of muscular and aerobic versus the nervous and endocrine system of the deep ocean. Um, so as you're thinking about your training, you really need to stick with it and think on these long term timescales and be willing to understand that. And that's one thing place where coaching really comes in because like I think all of us have trouble uh, conceiving of that in our own heads and new. Nutrition coaching comes in in this context because a nutritionist can be there to tell you, hey, this is a 12 month process, not a month or two month process. And embrace being an ocean. Yeah. Actually, so we've we've been talking about poetry on here and how sometimes we struggle to understand poetry, but listeners have been sending me a ton of great poetry and I'm starting to like learn from it and really appreciate it. And I read a poem the other day about how every human is an ocean. And as yeah. you were going down that analogy, I was like, every human is an ocean. I feel it. <laughs> every human is a changing body of water. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freestyle here. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Go have sex with the ocean. Make your dick blue. That's very good. You can call it Titanic. <laughs> yes. Perfect. The name of the poem. Um, you see, we're poets and we don't even know it. Do you have any other takeaways on the study? No, I think it's a fantastic study. Okay. And I'm just, I think there's a lot more, like, obviously female athletes are underrepresented in exercise physiology research, underrepresented sometimes in like medical exercise research and excited to see more research being done on this. And the team at Penn State is a, a great researching team. Um, and also they're probably going to listen to this and yeah. your poems intersected with their research. But I mean, it's it's truly fantastic. Oh yeah. Research. Oh yeah. And I think it's really important to say that the researchers were not involved in the no, making of not that at poem. All. Yes. Uh, but they're absolutely amazing. Nor are they involved in this podcast. We give... Whenever we give 
um, you know, these sexy science updates, we, it's coming from a place of, um, you know, we share, as we did with that study, we share like, you know, the limitations, we share the strengths, we, sh we share how generalizable it is, et cetera. Also badass research um, design to do this, um, really moving the field forward in a productive way. Um, okay. Do you want to move on to listener corner? Let's do listener corner. Of note, we just scrolled past our uh, side stitches outline yeah. yet again. The listener, Stephen, you don't understand how many like DMs I get on, on Instagram of people telling me, Megan, we need to talk about side stitches. So it's coming. <laughs> how, I, like like me in the ocean, um, <laughs> perhaps, and which is the perfect way to move on. I just rolled my eyes. Yeah, yeah. Very, very hard. I feel like at the end of the podcast, though, we only have the hardcore. These fans. are our true listeners. Yeah, yeah because... actually, no, that's not true. Our our numbers. This retention is one... rate's really good. These are what that's actually like the only statistic I listen to, and there are a lot of people listening to that right now. Yeah, I mean, retention rate is usually like over seventy five percent for ninety minute episodes, but I feel like the twenty five percent that do drop off early are like there. It's probably it's like the dropout in the study. Like, who knows how it biases? But I do know that if you get to the end, you have to you would be one hell of a hate listener. Um, okay, uh, I'll read the first one, and this is from listener N. One thing you discussed in your new podcast episode gave me goosebumps, the discussion about the yips or performance anxiety in general. When I was a teenager, I once got a bad grade in a math test. I remember how completely paralyzed I felt on the train home from school that day. All my life, excellent grades had been um, always been a normality that I did not even have to work for. I've conditioned myself to believe that you were either talented or not, and there's nothing you can do to change that. In that day, that belief system collapsed over my head. From that day onwards, I continuously got bad grades in math and completely froze when I was asked to solve an equation during a class. Nobody understood what was wrong with me. Since then, I always told myself that I'm just bad at math. Through your discussion, I understood that I might just be the yips and nothing more. Just one moment where my shot did not go in. I do not know if I will ever be able to, quote, fix myself, but I might not need to because I will never have to write a math test again. <laughs> uh, thank you for everything you do. You are totally awesome shooters and shooters shoot. Um, and then to end this email on a Sean Mendez note, who's a uh, pop singer, I'm telling you, take your shot. It might be scary. Hearts are going to break because we don't have the time to be sorry. So baby, be the life of the party. Oh, Huzzah. Cheers to that. And yeah. cheers to being the life of the math party, whether you're good at it or not. I, I, I think I just, I really appreciated this. this, And I, I feel like I've had situations like that in so many different yeah. things in life where like there's one bad experience as a young kid and it, it just kind of colors how you think about it for a while. Well, think about everything in life. I think, think actually that's an exercise for anyone that is listening right now. What are you not good at? Like whatever that thing is, think about why you're not good at it. And it's probably connected to something like this. And the point is you are fucking amazing at anything you do, at anything you put yourself out there for. And that's why, you know, as coaches, as people, hopefully you hear when we say you are amazing and like totally internalize it because we don't mean like, oh, you're going to be winning a national championship on the band shell in Daytona. We mean that just by putting yourself out there and trying it all or conceiving, thinking of these thoughts, that's what makes you amazing. And that's also then, you know, in a coaching perspective, hopefully what gives athletes the, the courage to face those fears. Oh, I like that a lot. And this next listener corner is from Jay. It's great. Jay wrote, that being said, churning content online can be intimidating, also inspiring too. And Strava can make my rhino trudging up a hill pace at times feel glacial. But enter the sheer unbridled enthusiasm <laughs> you both have. I feel like you would cheer as loudly for someone on the first step of the journey as someone crossing the finish line of a 100-mile race setting a course PR. And that is just such a gift. Furthermore, you're both just so open and honest. In today's world of curated online presence, to have such a dose of wholesome transparency buoyed by general passion of encouragement every Tuesday just makes my week so much better. I'm so excited for what this year will bring, including my first trail races already booked. Oh, yeah. And you guys significantly stoke that fire. I... First show racing coming up. I'm, is, I am stoked on that. That is so damn cool. And I, I don't know. That's just like 
makes everything worthwhile, you know, it does. Yeah. This labor of love. I just, it means so much. And yeah, I hope, uh, you know, in the enthusiasm, it all comes from a place of like being deeply anchored in the fact that like we all die. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like why we try to be as straightforward as possible. I agree. And that we just really appreciate it. I mean, we learn a ton from our listeners. It's It's been a process of like, I don't know, opening our email and just like being educated by what people are telling us and inspired too. And the more that you can share this podcast out there, we're grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. Share as much as you can. Actually, I wanted to end with in between, uh, right, right before we recorded, I saw an amazing quote from dumbrunner.com follow them follow mark lemmy he's he's great but it's a picture of a dandelion blowing in the wind as one of those motivation uh posters says and it says true change sometimes must begin by faking your own death <laughs> and i feel like what a perfect way to end this i appreciate it. also once a week you show me something from dumb runner and yeah. then we have a good laugh so i mean good instagram instagram or twitter uh, I think everything. I'm oh, not great. sure exactly. I follow on Twitter, but I'm more of a Twitter person than than you are. So yeah, we absolutely love you all. Um, you know, you're perfect just the way you are, whether you fake your own death or you don't. Um, <laughs> and we appreciate being on this journey with you so much. Woohoo! Rate, subscribe, review, whatever you do to podcasts. We're grateful for you all. Have an amazing day. Bye. Huzzah.